You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. Today we're talking about Hannah Arendt, and we're going to lead off with this crazy quote. The trouble with modern theories of behaviorism is not that they are wrong, but that they could become true, that they actually are the best conceptualization of certain obvious trends in modern society. It is quite conceivable that the modern age, which began with such unprecedented and promising outbursts of human activity, may end in the deadliest, most sterile passivity history has ever known. Now, if that doesn't get you up in the morning, I don't know what will. But before we dive into this commentary on the most depressing section that she probably has had, which is ironic because it's the end of the book, we are wrapping up the Human Condition by Hannah Arendt today. We will be talking about sections 43, 44, and 45, and also giving a summary of the book and kind of overall review. Before I do that, please make sure that you follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening and leave us a five-star review, especially a written review if you can. We have a written review here that we are going to read so that you guys can understand just how awesome it is that you are on our early adopters list here of people who are basking in greatness. I don't think that's an understatement, and neither do people here. This is from BJ Vet. It's great podcast for people who want dot dot dot. It cut you off there, BJ Vet. I'm not sure what else you said there, but what matters is the review below. I have been known to describe this podcast as a mix of Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro. What I mean by that is that Daniel is an engaging interviewer who makes the always interesting interviewees explain themselves and doesn't let them get away with anything. And then that the Roberts remain a multivitamin of apt knowledge and thinking fodder, except specifically for Christians. Because of this, Solomon's Corner has risen to and remains at the top tier of my listening material. Sometimes it's hard to think when you're doing dishes at the end of the day. But man, I am thankful to have this real-life resource to engage with during my busy, mundane, daily existence. Thank you, BJ Vet. We will definitely have to get you a free giveaway book for that amazing, amazing review. So anyway, if you can leave us a podcast review like that one, Maybe, you know, maybe not not exactly like that one, but pretty much same caliber, you know, letting everybody know that this is the next greatest thing. That'd be great. Otherwise, keep listening, keep thinking, and we're going to dive in here on the final sections of the human condition. So these were pretty wordy sections, but they had some nuggets in there, especially about Christianity and the influx of Cartesian thought, which was very interesting for me because I think that there is definitely a deep, deep influence on our Christian religions in America, especially, uh, that is really undetected by a lot of Christianity, especially fundamentalists, and and Hannah Arendt kind of ties into that. But before she she does that, that occurs in, in section 44, but before she does that in the first section of today's discussion, it's titled, The Defeat of Homophaber and the Principle of Happiness. And when we left off uh, on our last book club discussion was this idea of, you know, man needs to drop his arms and he needs to rest and reflect on the eternal ideas. And she ties this to Christianity's kind of practice of this, and she calls it the Vita Contemplativa. But it takes a weird turn in section 43, where she starts to demonstrate where the ancients and medievals would have turned inward and reflected on the eternal 
outside of man because of the Cartesian doubt that took the human experience and the modern human experience specifically by storm, this inward reflection did not turn man towards a divine ideas, but to the belief that life in the biological Darwinian sense was the eternal idea that man should aim at, and therefore ultimately his happiness was the the goal or hedonism. And so man becomes not not life in the the, the sacred definition, by the way. This is life as a biological process. You are a meat bag kind of thing. And this is rooted in the Darwinian theories and the merging of Cartesian doubt of the objective world. People don't like this doubt, basically. People in the most general sense, not not like a society or anything like that, but just the human, the human being, Homo sapiens, does not like this idea. And so the principle of all hedonism, as we saw before, is not pleasure, but avoidance of pain. And Hume, who in contradiction to Bentham, Bentham was a philosopher who on hedonism, knew quite well that he wants to make pleasure the ultimate end of all human action, is driven to admit that not pleasure, but pain, not desire, but fear are its true guides. And so then we, we see this evolutionary theory and this Cartesian doubt kind of focusing this man inward on himself and realizing that he is just basically a meat cog in a machine. And so we see this uh, description here on page 310. While this ultimate foundation of hedonism and the experience of pain is true for both its ancient and modern varieties, in the modern age it acquires an altogether different and stronger emphasis. For here it is by no means the world, as an antiquity that drives man into himself to escape the pains it may inflict, under which circumstance both pain and pleasure will still retain a good deal of their worldly significance. Ancient world alienation in all its varieties, and she lists several different philosophical varieties, had been inspired by a deep mistrust of the world and moved by a vehement impulse to withdraw from worldly involvement, from the trouble and pain it inflicts, into the security of an inward realm in which the self is exposed to nothing but itself. And this will come up later in section 44, where she talks about Christianity's view of human life. Their modern counterparts, Puritanism, Sensualism, and Bentham's Hedonism, on the contrary, were inspired by an equally deep mistrust of man as such. They were moved by doubt of the adequacy of the human senses to receive reality, the adequacy of human reason to receive truth, and hence by the conviction of the deficiency or even depravity of human nature. This depravity is not Christian or biblical, either in origin or in content, although it was, of course, interpreted in terms of original sin, and it is difficult to say whether it is more harmful and repulsive when Puritans denounce man's corruptness or when Benthamites brazenly hail as virtues what men always have known to be vices. So this is something I really want to explain, because I really think that there is this infusion of Cartesianism into Christian modern theological ideas, that this doubt of human experience can oftentimes be tied to total depravity, this idea that reason is not capable of knowing the truth because it's noetic effects of sin. All of these things she is basically saying are part of both the Christian kind of reinterpretation of Cartesian doubt as it applies in the Christian worldview, but also in the secular worldview, they basically said, well, we can doubt all virtue, and hedonism seems to be the basic premise of this thing. So she continues and says that basically you have Benthamism, which is a hedonism that has a calculus of its own, and then you have Puritanism and this moral calculus that is meant to assure you that you are still a Christian. And so both of them take Cartesianism 
into different directions. And this is what she says at the bottom of page 310. While the ancients had relied upon imagination and memory, the imagination of pains from which they were free or the memory of the past pleasures in situations of acute painfulness, that's a mouthful, to convince themselves of their happiness, the moderns needed the calculus of pleasure. And this would be pain minus pleasure. If you have a net pleasure, then you're, you're living a good life. If not, you're living a bad life. Or the Puritan moral bookkeeping of merits and transgressions to arrive at some illusory mathematical certainty of happiness or salvation. And so she's saying that because of this mathematical desire of certainty, this, this axiomatic Cartesian point that gives you certainty of something, the Puritans wanted certainty of salvation, the Benthamites wanted certainty of happiness. And it's this certainty, this desire for absolute certainty of knowledge of the truth that comes from doubting everything outside of your senses in order to fashion some sort of central certain point is the modern human experience. And everybody, according to Hannah Arendt, I, at least I think this is a fair interpretation, fell victim to this modern experiment. And so this, just as an aside, is a lesson that philosophy is part of the discussion. Whether you deny it or not, it is part of the stream of human experience, and it does have an influence on the roots of your theology or your philosophy or, or the, of your theology or your politics or the culture that you're in. The ideas in the ivory tower do trickle down into the battlefields of culture. That is just a fact, and that culture can be in your church, it can be in your school, it can be in your uh, city, it can be in your business. It is not something that you can avoid. It will be a part of your belief system or worldview. And so she says later on that in page 311, there's no reason why to think that if you were to take the Bentham position, that ultimately you're just trying to have this mathematical calculation for happiness, pain minus pleasure. Well, then if you actually do that calculation and you find yourself with a bunch of pain at the end of the calculation, then suicide should just be the result. So she says, if modern egoism were the ruthless search for pleasure, called happiness, it pretends to be, it would not lack what in all truly hedonistic systems is an indispensable element of argumentation, a radical justification of suicide. And so we see that no matter what, you end up with this radical kind of weird view of the world. On the one hand, you end up with this moral striving in the puritanical sense because you don't know if you're actually saved because you, you've screwed up. And after all, that's an indication that you've got some sort of sin in your life, so you better do a better job to assure yourself that you're saved. Not to work out your salvation as far as like works-based salvation, but it's, it's based on a fancy word, epistemology, this idea that you, you don't know if you're saved, so you better have some sort of behavior that lines up to assure yourself that you're saved. And so a lot of times this is where people come to pastors and they say, I screwed up. Am I still saved? And the pastor always says, well, because you're asking that question, it's a good sign that you are. But they can't give any sort of Cartesian assurance. And so this oftentimes leads to a lot of people feeling a lot of doubt in their faith. And in the same way, if you're a Benthamite, if you actually follow the, the, the calculus of the modern experiment out, according to Hannah Arendt, you find yourself in a, uh, a situation where it would be difficult not to justify suicide. So we keep going, and we, we find that life ends up being 
the the highest good. But she doesn't mean that in the sense of Christian life. She's going to touch on this in the next section on section 44, life as the highest good. But she's going to show you that what happened was, is the Christian understanding of life was reinterpreted along Darwinian lines due to the Cartesian experiment. So as she closes out this last section, she says, Naturalism, the 19th century version of materialism, seemed to find in life the way to solve the problems of Cartesian philosophy and at the same time to bridge the ever-widening chasm between philosophy and science. And what this is going to ultimately be is that she is going to start talking about how Darwinian life became the highest good. So we start into section 44, and we find ourselves thrust into this brief history of Christian society. And I'm going to read a couple quotes here because they just really capture this section. She says, The reason why life is asserted itself as the ultimate point of reference in the modern age and has remained the highest good of modern society is that the modern reversal operated within the fabric of a Christian society whose fundamental belief in the sacredness of life has survived and has even remained completely unshaken by secularization and the general decline of the Christian faith. Historically, moving on down halfway down the page on 314, historically it is more than probable that the victory of the Christian faith in the ancient world was largely due to this reversal, which brought hope to those who knew that their world was doomed. Indeed, a hope beyond hope, since the new message promised an immortality they never had dared to hope for. I'm going to pause here. There is a lot of people out there that have a false Christian hope. They don't understand how dark the world was when Christ came into it. And so there's this American version of hope, which I would call optimism. This idea that it's going to just work out because, after all, you know, American greatness, they don't call it that. They call it, you know, Christianity or God's always got your back or something like that, is going to ultimately work it out for your good. Well, the, the idea here, though, is that what Hannah Arendt is driving at is that the world was so bad, so bad, that, in, in, and she talks about this later on down the page, that you would be better off killing yourself as a slave than subjecting yourself to an existence that merely served somebody else because the platonic idea was it's better to be operating according to Hannah Rent. It's better for us to actually be free rather than to just operate in this life of necessity under slavery. So she says on page 316, one could no longer with Plato despise the slave for not having committed suicide rather than submit to a master. For to stay alive under all circumstances had become a holy duty, and suicide was regarded as worse than murder. Not the murderer, but he who had put an end to his own life was refused a Christian burial. So what she's trying to say here in this quote about immortality they never had dared to hope for was this idea that you can live for eternity despite how evil this culture is against you. And, you know, I'm taking this in a little bit more of a theological direction than I think Arendt maybe would appreciate. But I think for our current time today, it's important to understand what we mean by hope. When we, when we talk about being hopeful, it's not that things necessarily work out the way that we want, but that we can be hopeful that even in our demise, our demise 
was grounded in something of eternal value, mainly the truth. And that that demise is actually worth it. And that demise can be used for the good of the person who is holding on to, to truth with his, with his dying breath. And, and this ultimately is the kind of hope that I think this inspired me to think about when, when, we, when, when reading Arendt about this radical shift in what human beings suddenly started to believe was that they were immortal that they actually would have an eternal destiny, and that there was someone who came along and actually shifted the discussion with, a, with, with the resurrection. And, you know, that, that's what I would say. I don't think that this is merely Christians just, you know, well, philosophizing. You know what's really crazy? This Jesus character. Yeah, you, yeah, you read his books? Yeah? He a good, good, good thinker? That's not what happened. So we move on. Aspiration toward immortality could now only be equated with vainglory. Such fame as the world could bestow upon man was an illusion, since the world was even more perishable than man, and a striving for worldly immortality was meaningless, since life itself was immortal. And if we see what has happened in our current culture, there is this desire to live forever, which we've talked about in other podcasts on Yuval Noah Harari's book, Homo Deus. What's interesting is that man has stopped believing that he is immortal and is now trying to revivify through technological means a kind of immortality that would allow them to live far longer and with much more power than they ever have obtained in the past. Now, I I think you can go and listen to those, but spoiler alert, it's not a great idea. So we keep moving on and, and we we find that this, this human, this Christian emphasis on the sacredness of life actually won out. It wasn't able to be destroyed by the modern experiment. And she says, the modern age continued to operate under the assumption that life, and not the world, is the highest good of man. In its boldest and most radical revisions and criticisms of traditional beliefs and concepts, it never even thought of challenging this fundamental reversal which Christianity had brought into the dying ancient world, that man's life was actually more important than the life of the world. No matter how articulate and how conscious the thinkers of modernity were in their attacks on tradition, the priority of life over everything else had acquired for them the status of a self-evident worth. And as such, it has survived even in our present world, which has begun already to leave the whole modern age behind and to substitute for a laboring society, the society of job holders. So she, she's basically trying to say there is nothing that was able to come in and eliminate this idea of the sanctity of life. And we just saw that worked out in the Roe v. Wade decision, which was pretty awesome to be a part of. But now things are taking a twist. All right, we've lost the, we've lost the battle for life as a central point with modernity. So now what's the next thing? We end up with attacking the Christian faith in general. So she says, Surely Christian Cartesian doubt has proved its efficiency nowhere more disastrously and irretrievably than in the realm of religious belief, where it was introduced by Pascal and Kierkegaard, the two greatest religious thinkers of modernity. For what undermined the Christian faith was not the atheism of the 18th century or the materialism of the 19th. Their arguments are frequently vulgar and for the most part easily refutable by traditional theology, but rather the doubting concern with salvation of genuinely religious men in whose eyes the traditional Christian content and promise had become absurd. And so what she's saying there is that Cartesian philosophy infiltrated religious philosophy. The idea of like, okay, you have this theology, but explain to me how it manifests itself in the real world. 
and this doubt got into Pascal and Kierkegaard. I'm taking her word for it. If you like Pascal and Kierkegaard and think she's wrong, hit me up. We'll have you on the podcast. Mail at SolomonsCorner.com. You can email us there and let us know. So what ends up happening there is that this, this sacredness of life stays, but Christianity gets moved out, and we move into section 45, the victory of animal laborans. And this is where Karl Marx comes into the forefront. We have removed this idea that life is the immortality, and instead replaced it with a Darwinian process, the everlasting life process of the species of mankind, is an exact quote from her. And Marx transformed the cruder notion of classical economy Continuing the quote, that all men, insofar as they act at all, act for reasons of self-interest into forces of interest, which inform, move, and direct the classes of society, and through their conflicts, direct society as a whole. Socialized mankind is that state of society where only one interest rules, and the subject of this interest is either classes or mankind, but neither man nor men. And so she goes into this idea of natural force and says, what was left was a natural force, the force of the life process itself. And again, this is no longer a divine life process. This is a Darwinian life process, just a metabolic process, to which all men and human, all, all human activities were equally submitted. The thought process itself is a natural process, and whose only aim, if it had an aim at all, was survival of the animal species man. And so what this becomes is that now whatever man does, whatever he produces, whatever he decides to aim at is just his natural metabolic processes of survival trying to climb some hierarchy of status. He no longer cares about his fellow man or the human race. He only cares about what she says earlier is the classes or mankind, but neither man nor men. So he's either just this, he's achieving this elite class status in the immediate, or he's trying to plant himself as some sort of arbiter of mankind. And so we find her say, so that means that artists like Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, he does this out of similar urges that compel the silkworm to produce silk. He's nothing more than an animal trying to survive. And you can see how this manifests itself in CRT and other Marxist ideas that are currently coming through our culture today that say, well, this is just your white biological life process trying to work itself out in order to preserve your species or preserve your status or your class or whatever. You can't help it. You're just a biological process set on a course, programmed to do what you're going to do. Well, if it's inevitable that I'm going to do what I'm going to do, then what's the solution that the person's going to propose if I can't be changed? Something to think about. So we continue on and we find that quote that we opened up with about man's sterile passivity in history, that the, the last stage of the laboring society, the society of job holders, demands of its members a sheer automatic functioning as though individual life had actually been submerged in the overall life process, again, Darwinian life process, of the species, and the only act of decision still required of the individual were to let go, so to speak, to abandon his individuality, the still individually sensed pain and trouble of living, and acquiesce in a dazed, tranquilized, functional type of behavior. And this leads us to her conclusion of, this may end in the deadliest, most sterile passivity history has ever known. And what we see right now is a massive amount of apathy, relatively speaking, to the masses. You see a lot of people out there on social media or whatever getting mad about what it is, but relative to the majority, you know, there's 320 million people in this country, and even in the last election, supposedly, if you believe the numbers, only half of them voted. So 
there is a massive amount of apathy regarding, you know, actual action in life. But we, we kind of come to this last section here, which was really encouraging to me because of what we try to do here at Solomon's Corner, which is to encourage you to not be dependent on everybody else for your thought life. Sure, you might need some guides like Hannah Arendt to get the juices going, you know, to start the, the percolator, so to speak, to make the coffee that you need to give to the world with your ideas. But she demonstrates that elites are not immune from this thing. And she kind of has this abrupt end to the book. But she gives this great kind of final thought here on page 324. And the first point she makes is that scientists and the elites that we find ourselves in, and keep in mind she's writing this around like 1950s or something, and for her the technology is nowhere near as advanced as what we have today. But she is, she says, the action of scientists, since it acts into nature from the standpoint of the universe and not into the web of human relationships, and that's a reference to the idea that scientists view themselves as standing in the Archimedean point, that they can see things that we can't. We have a bias, they don't, they're neutral. And if you don't believe me, just go listen to some Fauci tapes. But the action of the scientist, since it acts into nature from the standpoint of the universe and not into the web of human relationships, lacks the revelatory character of action as well as the ability to produce stories and become historical, which together form the very source from which meaningfulness springs into and illuminates human existence. And this existentially most important aspect, action too, has become an experience for the privileged few, and these few who still know what it means to act may well be even fewer than the artists, their experience even rarer than the genuine experience and love for the world. Thought, finally, which we, following the pre-modern as well as the modern tradition, omitted from our reconsideration of the Vita Activa, is still possible and no doubt actual. Wherever man lives under the conditions of political freedom, so what she's trying to say is, is that the thought life can be part of the active life, but only where there is political freedom. She says, unfortunately, and contrary to what is currently assumed about the proverbial ivory tower independence of thinkers, no other human capacity is so vulnerable, and it is in fact far easier to act under conditions of tyranny than it is to think. As a living experience, thought has always been assumed, perhaps wrongly, to be known only to the few. It may not be presumptuous to believe that these few have not become fewer in our time. This may be irrelevant or of restricted relevance for the future of the world. It is not irrelevant for the future of man. And so I, I read this and I think it's, it's encouraging for us who are sitting here wanting to be thinkers, wanting to pursue an, a life of active thought, a life that doesn't just stay in the books but actually produces something, whether that be books whether that be a curriculum, whether that be a lecture, whether that be an application for software to make life a little bit better and communicate some deeper truths that make man as he is uh, in its current state consume the truth that he desperately needs to have a meaningful life. All of us can participate in the intellectual life. But it's hard. It's not easy. But it's not reserved to the ivory towers and, the, and the, the letters next to names and the PhDs and these kinds of things, or, you know, to the, what we would say, narcissistic, egotistical people in tweed jackets. 
Aristotle and Plato can be a rich experience for anyone who decides to do the work, but it's also not easy. And you have to do it in community. You have to do it with people who want to work hard with you. You need a workout partner, so to speak. And you need to start applying yourself and living the lifestyle of an intellectual. And I read what she says here, and I may be misinterpreting it. At the end of the day, it's not reserved to the ivory tower. It's reserved to your human potential and your ability to make a difference in the community that you're in, to be a, as Kuiper would say, a hive of a higher life for your community to demonstrate to them what it looks like to be a slave to truth. So this is the end of the human condition. I thought it was a really uh, interesting book, real slow start, but ultimately I'm glad that we read it. I'm glad that I learned a lot of things. I have definitely found myself using her system occasionally in conversation with friends as we discuss the phenomenon of the age that we're in. And I hope that you will continue to read with us and study with us and send us your thoughts and comments to our social media or our email at mail at salomonscorner.com or in the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening to us ramble about these crazy philosophers. I hope that you have a great day. Keep thinking. <laughs>